This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me once again to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we come to the end of the sermons on those first three verses, we'll be transitioning, Lord willing, next week to the next little section there. But as I've been reading these verses just over and over, I have reminded, have been reminded how easy it is for a church like ours. And what I mean by that is a church that values the word of God uh, a church that believes the word of God matters, uh, believes that we need to preach the word of God and study the word of God and believes that every word in the word of God matters and praise God, we're that kind of church. But often in the midst of our study of God's word and our care for maybe the careful exposition of God's word and maybe in our 12 month study of Hebrews, we might tend to miss the emotion and the feeling of every text. And the book as a whole. I say this to you a lot. The, the emotion of the text matters. Because God doesn't speak in monotone. Neither do we. And so you want to know the tone of voice that God is using when he's speaking to us through his word. Because it helps us to understand a bit of his meaning. And sometimes we can take a statement in the wrong way if we don't understand the heart behind that statement. That's true in all conversation. But it's true with the Lord as well. We might totally miss the point of the text if we don't understand really the feel and the emotion of it. And so when we come to this text in Hebrews 12 and the first few verses, we need to be reminded that this was written by a pastor to a church, to a group of real people whom most likely he had met. He might have even planted the church and been involved in the church. And he's aware of what's happening in these people's lives. He's primarily aware that they're under an incredible amount of pressure. They have left the old system of Judaism and they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. But pulling them back are family pressures from family members that want them to renounce Jesus Christ. Political pressures. There are physical pressures. They're literally being tortured and imprisoned. We know this from Hebrews 10 because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. There's the demonic pressures. There's the pressures, pressures of the flesh. And all of those pressures are pulling them away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And the one who is writing this is really burdened. He feels great love and affection for them. He looks at them like Jesus looks at the multitudes and his heart breaks at the thought that they might leave the fold and run away from Jesus. And we know that this can happen. We know it because the parable of the soils tells us that there are all kinds of people who begin the journey. They make a profession of faith. They say a prayer. They even serve, but they don't stay with Jesus, showing they weren't really a disciple at all. You know this from your life. You know from your experience. You've met people who've made a decision and haven't stayed until the end. And somehow we're confused by how all that happens, but the reality is it happens. And so the author of Hebrews is just with great passionate love and longing and desire is pleading with them to not only run, but to keep running until the very end. And this is the reason you have all of these warnings. And, and again, 
These warnings are harsh and they feel harsh, but if you feel the heart behind them, they sound different. In Hebrews 2, when he says, pay, pay very close attention lest ye drift away. He's just saying, I don't want you to drift and it's a possibility, so, so watch yourself. In Hebrews 10, he says, don't give up your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance if you're gonna take hold of the promises of God. Every single verse just kind of flows out of this heartbeat of a longing, a pleading with them to just make it until the end. Stay faithful until the very last breath. And that's exactly the feel behind these verses that we've been looking at the last few weeks. So as I read these verses again for us, just think about the feel, the longing, the desire, not only for the author and how he has that for this church, but how the Lord has it for you. If you're there in Hebrews 12, say amen. It says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, meaning think carefully, ponder, look to him, gaze at him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I've told you the last few weeks that everything in this passage revolves around those three words, let us run. And I've wondered why the author of Hebrews didn't do what Paul often did. You see it in Ephesians chapter four, when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Why didn't he continue that metaphor of, of walking with Jesus? I think because he's trying to heighten the awareness of what's at stake in this moment. Like he's coming to the end of the book and he really is aware that some of them are getting lazy and, and they're starting to be pulled away by all of those pressures. And so instead of saying, let us walk, he said, let us run. <laughs> Everything's at stake. You're, you're getting close to the end. Don't give up now. Give your best to Jesus. Give your greatest energy to Jesus Christ. Let us run this loving, passionate desire. And you notice the word that was mentioned three times, once in verse one and once in verse two and once in verse three, that word endurance. Let us run, how? With endurance, meaning not stopping. Because Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured in his race. And he endured hostility in his race. Jesus endured and you need to endure as well. You need to make it until the end. Look back, just a page back at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Look back at that text. I wanna read that because it really is helpful to get this in our mind as we think about where we're headed this morning. It says this, recall the former days when after you were enlightened. What he says there is, remember when you got saved? Remember back when you got saved? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This was their situation sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What an amazing phrase. Why did you do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And I love the feel of this verse, church. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Church, we are not of those who shrink back. We don't shrink back. We're gonna make it until the end like Jesus did. We're gonna endure in the midst of all the pressure and all the conflict and all the affliction and all the public reproach. We're gonna make it, church, faithful, holding on to Jesus until the end. He's really trying to stir up their their faithfulness. He's doing a wonderful job of calling them to remain until the end. And then we get to Hebrews 12 and it really kind of addresses some of the practical ways in which we do that. And so that's what we've spent the last few weeks looking at. We looked at the race that we run. What is this race that we run? We look at the need to, to get rid of hindrances and sins, the things that slow us down and trip us up. We gotta deal with those if we wanna run. We looked last week at where our eyes need to be constantly looking at Jesus because you're always gonna end up in the direction you're looking. So keep looking at Jesus. There's one more thing we need to see from this text. And that is even if we understand the race and we understand what we're supposed to look and we're getting rid of all the sin, we have to ask this question in this race. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to, to run this race with Jesus? And why is it worth it? What is it that should motivate us to run the race? There has to be something good enough to make us say no to all of the sin and all of the pleasure to take hold of something that we can't see. There has to be a good enough motivation. Now, if you were to come to me and you were to say, Pastor Josh, I wanna wanna give you a personal challenge. And I would say, great, I love love a good challenge. I want to challenge you by the end of the year to run 20 miles without stopping. I say, okay, what do I get? Well, you just get the the pleasure of knowing you can run 20 miles. Well, I don't need that. Like I'm good knowing that I can run about a half a mile. Like I'm good, I'm fine with that. Like I don't, I'm, I'm not that insecure in my manhood to feel like I have to prove to somebody I can run 20 miles. I just, I don't need that. So I'm not interested. Say, okay, okay, hold on. How about a dollar a mile? I'm not even, I'm, I'm leaving. Are you kidding me? 20 bucks, run 20 miles without stopping? There's no way. Okay, Pastor Josh, hold on. $1,000 a mile. I'm listening. <laughs> we're having a conversation. I haven't agreed, but we're having a conversation. And then they say again, listen, this is without stopping. I start thinking about all it's gonna take to try to learn how to run 20 miles and like no more cookies for breakfast and like all of that. And so I'm probably out. That's okay, Pastor, last, this is it, last offer, $10,000 a mile. Now, I'm in, I'm just gonna be honest with you. <laughs> and if you're, if you're saying right now, so Pastor, it would take $200,000 for you to train to run 20 miles, the answer is yes. <laughs> and don't judge me for taking the money. I have five kids to put through college and four weddings coming, don't judge me. <laughs> I'm gonna train like a dog. You've never seen anybody train like I'm gonna train for 200,000 bucks. <laughs> So what happens is the greater the reward gets, the more I'm interested, right? And the greater the reward gets, the more I'm starting to think, I, that could be worth it. Like I could, I think I could get behind that a little bit. And it's, it's not only right, it's good for us to ask the question of the Lord, is this worth it? Like that's not a wrong question to ask. It's the question of the text. 
Because here's the point that I want you to see this morning. I wanna make sure you get this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. The point I want you to see is this. The race that we run is hard, but the reward that we receive is worth it. That's it. The race that we run is hard, but the reward that we receive is worth it. I assure you, in the midst of all of the difficulty and all of the suffering and all of the challenges and all of the cost that you will incur when you follow Jesus, the reward you get will be worth it. And the call of this text is to believe that by faith. To believe that by faith. You say, well, how do you know that the race we run is hard, but the reward we receive is worth it? And the answer is because we look to Jesus. And the race he ran was hard and the reward he received was worth it. And he's our model in this race. So let's look at both sides of that. First of all, let's look at the fact that the race we run is hard. The race we run is hard. We saw last week, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Do you see that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, verse two, which means he charts the course, he, he leads the way. He is the only one that has ever finished the race perfectly. And it's great news to know that we have someone who has done it and shows us the way. He shows us kind of what we saw last week, above the surface, below the surface. How do we look to Jesus and what do we learn from him? And it's also really good to know that it is only by his sustaining grace, step by step, we can run the way. So it's not just that he shows it to us and leaves us. He says, no, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. And so we know that he's running with us. He's encouraging us, sustaining us along the way. That's really good news. The bad news is that the race that we run is the one that he ran. Meaning we often forget that when Jesus invites us to follow him, he's inviting us to go where he's going. This is why he says, are you willing to count the cost? Because this is going to to cost you something. And I don't know where we've missed it. Like we think that we can follow Jesus, but never go the race that he ran. And the race that he ran was hard. It's defined for us in three phrases. Look at them in verse two. Two of them, it says, who, for the joy set before him, here's the first one, endured the cross. The second one, despising the shame. The third one in verse three, endured from sinners such hostility. That's, that's the course that Jesus ran. That's the race that he ran. A race in which he endured the cross, despised the shame, and endured the hostility. It's a hard race. Let's look at the cross, first of all. In our Look to Jesus conference um, a few weeks ago, the guy who was speaking uh, said something kind of as an aside And uh, it really touched me. He said, what do you think about when you see the cross? And I was sitting right there on that second row on the end. And I looked right here. And I thought about the fact that that symbol is there every single week. It's always there. And I don't even notice it anymore. it's It's just kind of part of the furniture, right? You don't even notice. But what do we think of when we think about that cross? What we should think about is the fact that we deserve to be there. And the suffering that took place there was all for us. Like think about the physical suffering of that cross, just the physical suffering. To die by crucifixion is to die by suffocation. 
So when your feet and your hands are nailed to the cross, the only way for you to get a breath is to go down and to push yourself up. And when you push yourself up, you can get a breath. The problem is behind you is a jagged, wooden, splintery piece of wood. And so every time you push up, your back scrapes against that piece of splintery wood. And every time you go back down, your back scrapes upon that splintery wood. But if you don't do that, you can't get a breath. So you've got this gnawed, bloody, extremely painful back. And the more raw it gets, the more painful it gets as you push up every time. And so ultimately the person on the cross can't take another breath because they're in so much pain and exhausted and they die from suffocation. And the reason the soldiers came to the men beside Jesus and broke their legs is because they still weren't dead. And when you break their legs, they can't push up anymore. And so right then, without the ability to push up, they suffocate. An incredibly painful death that Jesus Christ endured on our behalf. But think about the relational pain of Jesus. Like eternally existing as God, eternally in perfect relationship with God the Father, the best relationship we will ever experience on this earth pales in comparison to the intimacy that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit enjoyed for all of eternity past. This is why in John 17, he says, I want them to be one like you're one. Perfect relational intimacy, perfect knowledge, perfect acceptance, perfect value. And at one moment, all of that broken, Jesus left completely alone and rejected by his Father. Think about the spiritual pain. Just think about your life. How much pain is there in your heart and in your life because of your sin or someone else's? Think about that. Think about how people have hurt you. Think about the sin of maybe a parent or a friend or someone that abused you or took advantage of you. Imagine the pain that that's caused your heart and think about the pain of just your own sin. Now imagine that pain bottled up and then taken together with that same amount of pain from every single individual person in this room. Can you imagine the heaviness of gathering together all of the pain of all the sin in this room and feeling it at one time? Now imagine all of the pain and all of the sin from all of God's redeemed for all of eternity, gathering that all together and in one moment placing it upon one man. Think of the weight and the heaviness of that. That's exactly what Jesus endured on the cross. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 says. Look at this. It says this. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great lion of Judah, who in a moment could have brought himself down from the cross and annihilated everybody who's looking like a slaughtered, helpless sheep. That's the cross. But it says he also despised the shame. Crucifixion was intended to humiliate you. There's no other form of punishment really like this that we can think of, but the fact that they made you take up your cross and walk through the streets, why? To bring you shame. 
And so you walk through the streets and all the shame and everybody's cheering and you're walking there and then they put you in an open place up on a hill so everyone can see you crucified. And there is Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God next to two hardened criminals and the shame that he received from those who stand there and mock him and say, hey, listen, you said you were God, you could save others, why don't you save yourself? They're jaunting, they're, they're cheering, they're mocking him in every single breath. Last week we talked about how important it is for us to, when we look to Jesus, to see his security. Because if you don't embrace the security of, of the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, you will be so insecure that you'll do anything anybody asks you to do, just for acceptance and just for a sense of security. So you'll just be led wherever, doing whatever anybody says to you to do, no matter how stupid it is, why? Because you're so desperate for affection and acceptance. But all of that can be found in, in the Heavenly Father. And so Jesus had this perfect sense of acceptance. So because he had that, he wasn't bothered by the shame. He could take the shame knowing that he was okay and secure in how the father thought about him. Now look at that word there. It's such an interesting word. Despising the shame. <laughs> Despising, hating the shame. What does that mean that Jesus didn't just, because every other thing it says he endured. He endured the cross. He endured the hostility, but he despised the shame. It looks something like this. It is Jesus on the cross filled with an incredible amount of hatred for sin and Satan. He hates sin and he hates how it's wreaked havoc upon your life. He hates it. And so on the cross, he looks at shame in which he is a picture of as he's elevated on the cross. And he says something like this, Satan, you have used this weapon since the garden of Eden. It was shame that led Adam and Eve to hide from me. And for generation and generation, you have used shame to get people to hide, shame to keep people from being honest, shame to get people to do all kinds of ridiculous things. You have used shame as a weapon for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. You have constantly used shame. Shame, I hate you, and I break your power right now on the cross. That's what it meant. He despised the shame. I hate you and you have no power over anyone else ever again because I am taking the shame on the cross. So if you're a believer and you're filled with shame, you don't have to be because Jesus was publicly shamed so you never had to feel shame ever again. And you've got to hate it as much as Jesus did to the extent that you're willing to fight against it in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and say, I don't have to live with this shame any longer. He despised the shame. I feel like, Ryan, I feel like I deserve like one amen. That was really powerful, I feel like. Are you, you guys good? Everybody good? Look at verse three. He endured the hostility, the constant anger and hatred and false accusations and aggression against him. This is not just the end of the race. Do you know that when Jesus first started his ministry, the first, one of the very first events we have of him, he walks into his home synagogue, this is Luke 4, and he opens a scroll like it's normal, and he read, normal, comes in, opens the scroll, reads, but what he did that is not normal is he read from Isaiah and said, this was written about me. From that very moment, the first time he went into his home synagogue, his first year of ministry, they tried to run him down and throw him off a cliff. Day one. 
And that was every day for the rest of his life. Every day, constant hostility. But yet it says that he endured the hostility. In the midst of the hostility, in the midst of the cross, in the midst of the shame, he never stopped running. He ran until the very end. So that's, that's the difficulty of the race that Jesus ran. Now, the race for the Hebrews that this was written to is almost identical. Remember we read that Hebrews 10 where many of them have been thrown in prison. They've been publicly exposed. They've received affliction. So all of the shame, all of the affliction, all of the hostility, all of the suffering, that's theirs. He's writing to people that are actually enduring this. And they're having to remember Philippians 3 that we should count it a joy to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. They're having those things, but that's, that's really not us, okay? The race we run is hard, but, but not in that same way. And so I was, I was studying this text and I was thinking about it and uh, I heard footsteps outside of my door and uh, I said, who's there? And Adam Tarver said he was there and he came in and I said, all right, Adam, let's think about this. What does this look like for us? How is our race hard today? Like February, 2022, how is our race hard? We just started to think about it. Because if you really choose to follow Jesus, it's gonna cost you something. Well, doesn't it cost you to love somebody? Doesn't it cost you to humble yourself and to look someone in the eye and to give them time and to give them attention? That book that we're reading for our community groups, Paul Miller says the reason we don't often step into love is because the moment we step into somebody's difficult situation, we take up on ourselves some of that difficult situation. This is why we don't help needy people because as soon as we step into a needy person's life, all of a sudden that need becomes us and we don't want it because we've got enough of our own needs. But love steps into that, puts my needs aside. That costs you something. It costs you to give grace to people. It costs you to, to humble yourself and to forgive and to listen and to stop judging and to step into someone's life and listen and to meet someone's need. That costs you something. It costs you to give truth, particularly in a generation that sees truth as hatred. It costs you to stand on the truth. It costs you to believe this and to say what you believe and to stand with what you believe. It costs you to sacrificially serve. It costs you to give generously, to lose your reputation, to give up the praise and the affirmation of others, to lose friends because you choose not to do what they do. It costs you something. It costs you to miss out on what the world is doing. When you start removing those things that are hindering you from walking with Jesus, that's gonna cost you something. You may be out of the loop. You may not know everything everybody knows. Those are costs for following Jesus. Like I think about the cost of doing business Jesus's way and the cost of navigating relationships Jesus's way. One of the ones we talked about is, listen, I think for our singles and for our students, the cost of dating in the way of Jesus is gonna cost you something. That's a real cost. If you choose to say, I'm not gonna give my heart to just anyone who asks it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna protect my heart and I'm gonna wait to give it to someone who deserves it and is ready to take it all the way to marriage. And I'm gonna wait. That costs you something. I'm gonna hold on. I'm gonna be faithful. I'm gonna do this God's way. Those are costs. And so I want you to know that the race that you run is hard and the more you choose to step into the life of Jesus, I'm not kidding, the more you choose to step into that life, the harder it's gonna get. Like it's just hard and totally countercultural to walk with Jesus. The race we run is hard. But here's the second part. The reward we receive is worth it. 
I'm here to tell you and assure you, based upon the life of Jesus, the reward we receive is worth it. So what's the, what's the prize at the end? And I want to say this is not a bad question to ask. I think sometimes we feel like, well, we should just do it for, you know, just because Jesus did so much for us. You know, Matthew 6, he says, you know why you should give? Because the Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know why you should pray? Because God will reward you. You know why you should fast? God will reward you. God wants us to go after the reward. You can be motivated by reward. So we ask the question, all right, I'm going to get serious about Jesus. It's going to cost me something, all kinds of things. Jesus, why is it worth it? And Jesus answered the question in verse 2 with three words, for the joy. That's it, for the joy. Why did Jesus do it? What motivated him? What led him to endure the cross and the shame and the hostility? Well, it said, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despised the shame and endured the hostility. Before him, he saw joy. He wanted the joy. He was running for the joy. He was finishing for the joy. That was the great reward for him. So what's, what's the joy? What brought joy to Jesus? Well, I mean, it could be the, the exaltation. Do you see at the end of verse two, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, he finished and got all power and authority and sat down at the greatest place of honor. That's a good reward. It could have been the glory of the father. I mean, John 14, 13, Jesus says, everything I do, I do for the glory of the father. And certainly Jesus felt, felt incredibly fulfilled and full of joy when the father got the honor and the glory he deserved. I think all of that is true. And I think those are happening, but I don't think that's primarily the joy. I think the joy for Jesus was not the exaltation. The joy of Jesus was not primarily the glory. The joy of Jesus, that thing which made him endure to the end, to endure the cross, to stay there when he could have called the angels to get him down, to take all of the shame, to, to, to endure years of hostility. What is it that made it worth it? The joy before him was you. You're the joy. You're the joy. <laughs> what filled him with joy was you, was, was the gathering of, of his people who had been lost and beaten and abused by sin. He looks at the multitudes and feels compassion for them because they're sheep without a shepherd. He sees you wandering through life. He sees the number that sin has done to you. He sees the consequences of other people's sin and how it's affect you. And it breaks your heart and Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Hebrews 2, 10, he has come to bring many sons to glory. Everything he did, he came that for the glory of the Father, he might gather you together and take your broken heart and mend it together again. For the joy is you. He came to get you. He stayed on the cross for you. He was publicly shamed for you. All of that so that you didn't have to go on the cross. You didn't have to have the shame. You didn't have to have that same hostility. You could instead be settled in a whole right relationship with God at perfect peace in the midst of total chaos because he endured the cross for the joy of you. That's his joy. Now listen, if, if his joy was you, what's our joy? So we, we, we're running the same race and we got to go for the joy set before us because you know Jesus' motivation, but what should yours be? Here's what I want to say. If Jesus' joy was you, your joy is him. If Jesus' joy was you, your joy was him. 
Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the prize because you were created for him and in a relationship with him, everything that your soul has ever wanted is found in him and everything else is a cheap substitute. Like you were created for Jesus. You find all of your life in Jesus. Your great reward is, is Jesus. That's why Matthew 13, says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and a man finds it and sells everything to get it. The point is this, if you had to sell everything to get Jesus, it'd be worth it because he's the greatest treasure. That there's nothing that matters, there's nothing that lasts apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand this morning that your joy really matters to Jesus. John 13 through 17 is upper room discourse. Jesus having communed with his disciples about to go to the cross. Seven times he mentions their joy. I want you to have joy. I want you to know my joy. I want you to have fullness of joy in his last words, he wants them to understand how important it is that they receive the joy that he has. You could never comprehend how important it is for you to have joy. God cares about your joy. God is glorified when you're joyful in Jesus, when you love Jesus and find him satisfying. But listen to this. Jesus also knows that the experience of that joy is only found in closeness to him. The experience of that joy is only found in closeness to him. Sky Pratt preached an incredible message in the first of the year uh, on Psalm 16. There was a lot of people gone. I think we only had one service that day, and, but it was just a great message. And so I've been trying to memorize Psalm 16 at night. And what I do is I take just a little phrase and I just kind of say it over and over in my head as I, as I go to sleep. And of all things, here was last night's phrase. The sorrows of those who run after another God will be multiplied. The sorrows, listen to me, the sorrows of those who run after another God will be multiplied. Everyone is running. If you run after anything other than Jesus, your sorrows will be multiplied. Maybe a little joy for a moment, but multiplying sorrows. Listen, how many of you, well, this, I'm gonna make this rhetorical. Well, we can all raise your hand. How many of you have done something at some point in your life that was joyful, it seemed for the moment, but ended up with multiplied sorrows. Right? Multiplied sorrows. Here's what he says. If you go after another God, multiplied sorrows. You go after Jesus, multiplied joys. And you just gotta choose by faith that the joy that Jesus has for you is better. So let me tell you how this works practically, okay? If you're with me, say amen. Here's how this works practically. As you run every day with Jesus, you experience some of his joy. And at the end of your race, when you finish, you experience the fullness of his joy. I need you to get this. Every day you run with Jesus. You wake up and, and say, by faith, I don't wanna do that because that's gonna multiply my sorrows. And I just love that the heart of God warns us of that. Like if you keep going for that, multiplied sorrows, multiplied troubles, so I'm gonna to choose to run after Jesus and I'm gonna do the hard things and I'm gonna run the race and, and, and I'm gonna do the unpopular things. Like I'm just, I'm gonna go with Jesus today and I'm here to tell you that if you'll do that by faith, you're gonna experience some of the joy of the Lord. Like let's say you wake up this morning and you say, shame, you're not gonna own me today. I'm gonna to fight against you in the power of Jesus Christ today. You know what happens? Shame decreases and joy increases. So you just start fighting for, for the Lord and for what is right in your heart and, and as you do, you experience some of his joy. And the way I know that is because in John 15, Jesus says, I want you to abide in me. And he says, 
I want you to abide in me so that your joy may be full. All abide means is every day getting close to Jesus. That's all it means. Get close to Jesus every day. So the closer you get to Jesus, the more you experience his joy moment by moment. But then this, the end of Psalm 16 says this, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forever. Meaning you're gonna get these little taste of joy and they're gonna keep you running. And you're gonna get a little taste of joy and it's gonna keep you running. You're gonna realize it's really good to say no to sin and say yes to the Lord and you're gonna keep running. And then when you get to your very last breath, listen, exhausted and tired from the run, you wake up with the fullness of joy in his presence forevermore. That's how that works. I just told somebody this week, you know, we're supposed to come to the end of this life tired. Everybody wants to be so refreshed all the time. Listen, we're supposed to be so exhausted when we take our last breath that we get to heaven and go, oh, this is so great. Oh, this is so great. We just, we run and we give ourselves fully to the cause of Christ and we do receive joy even though the race is hard, the reward of joy is worth it. And then at the very end, when we close our eyes for that last time, we wake up in the presence of God with fullness of joy forever. And the reason you need to know that, look at the end of verse three, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let me tell you something. I get weary in my fight against sin. I get faint-hearted in parenting and, and marriage and pastoring and every job God's given me, everything I've got in my life. I just get weary and, and faint-hearted every day. I struggle with getting weary and faint-hearted. These things were written that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. So at the moment in which I feel weary and faint-hearted and don't wanna go any further, I hear the words, for the joy, for the joy, for the joy. Keep running for the joy. Keep running for the joy. We run for the joy. Don't go weary, don't get faint-hearted. Run with all of your might and take hold moment by moment and fully in eternity, all the joy that God has for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.